when the libertarians thought about like marketizing retirement, I don't think they really thought through the ramifications of once everybody's retirement is tied to the market, now a big decline in the market becomes, you know, or even a you know relatively medium-sized decline in the market becomes a major social and political issue. Um, so, you know, where in the past, uh, stock market going down, say 15%, um, you know, it would have had an effect, but the average guy working at GM wouldn't really matter at all. Wouldn't matter to his pension, wouldn't matter to his job. Today, when you have, you know, all your retirees and they all vote, um, you know, that being the most important thing in their life, that makes the Fed and, and the government generally much less likely to allow the sort of natural market corrections that the libertarians theoretically want. Um, so the the whole marketization approach kind of has that inherent contradiction and, and breeds government involvement in sort of propping up propping up markets and, and AUMs through Fed policy or whatever. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week it's just me. Uh, we decided to do an autist to autist podcast uh, with Julius Krein today, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, as always, make sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can keep up with everything we have cooking. If you fill out the form at AmericanMoment.org slash join, we'll probably meet and chat about how you can help us save the country in all the ways that American Moment thinks we need a lot more of, mostly getting involved here in Washington, D.C. You know, we are, we're actually, we had just hosted a party a few days ago in D.C., and the name of the cocktail that we put out, uh, yes, I know, cocktail, uh, was Bubbling Change. It was a French 75, and there's a lot of change bubbling in Washington and across the country, and so if you'd like to help be a part of that, um, helping a lot of the figures that come on this show uh, and a lot of the people behind the scenes who are going to help make the changes that we believe should happen in the conservative movement and the Republican Party and Washington more broadly happen then reach out to us. Um, but this week, we had on uh, one of my favorite people. We had on Julius Krein, who's the editor of American Affairs, which is a quarterly journal of policy and political thought. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and many other publications. Uh, Julius is my favorite misanthrope on this planet. <laughs> I'm mostly kidding. He's actually a delightfully pleasant person and one of the most erudite and intelligent people I've ever met. But uh, I, I think he uh, has little patience for a lot of the BS that you see around this town, uh, you know, hagiographies of a so-called conservative movement that may not have conserved very much at all. We, we, we dive extremely deep into this episode on all things political economy and economics, um, how financialization hurts the economy, why uh, we've set the table very poorly for really, really having reindustrialization in this country this decade and this century, um, China, um, his views on conservatism, the uh, genealogy of American affairs, how it kind of came out of, uh, you know, this begats that begins with the, the Journal of American Greatness, just a ton of excellent content. I believe we went quite long. I think it was like at least an hour and a half. So you guys are in for a treat. Listen through to the end. Um, it is absolutely fantastic. And I don't always plug our guest stuff, but I would highly recommend that if you are a subscriber to any one publication, American Affairs is one of the few places where you can go to read something that you didn't already know. Um, I'm in my way uh, through 
reading the entire backlog right now. Uh, I've made it a goal to finish that by the end of this year, maybe early next year. Uh, every single article that's published there is exceptionally high quality. It's long, it's in-depth, you will learn something. So I think that's the best uh, uh, credit I can give it. Uh, Julius is an absolute treat, and we'll go now to Julius Crying. Howdy, Julius. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, we always like to hear about how people got to the point where they are today. You are uh, an unusual profile for a, a magazine salesman on the right. Is, is, is American Affairs technically a magazine or what's uh, the term? Is it a book, a booklet? I prefer periodical. A periodical. Yeah. Uh, you are a rare periodical salesman on the right in that you actually uh, did something in the world before you came to do this. Uh, tell us tell us the story of how you got here. Uh, well, that may be a stretch, but uh, I did have a long and, and winding road. Um, I began my career out of college in finance. Uh, actually, I graduated college in 2008, so it was a good time or an interesting time. Uh, and I did investment banking, and then I went and sort of joined a family office um, doing what was called frontier markets uh, investments in you know deeply emerging countries in Africa and the Middle East. I had a very brief stint as a subcontractor for the Department of Defense uh, in Afghanistan, uh, which was very illuminating. Um, not very effective as you might guess, still <laughs> quite, quite educational. Did you go over there? Yeah, I was there for, um, a couple months. Okay. Um, and then, uh, I, and then I joined a more conventional, um, hedge fund, a uh, couple of hedge funds in the United States, um, doing all kinds of different multi-strategy things from credit to muni bonds to energy, uh, emerging markets, you name it. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, I was sort of doing that and then 2015 rolls around and um, this was very early, but I ended up scrolling through C-SPAN and they were doing a Trump rally. And actually what first really got me is somebody asked a dumb question and Trump says, that's a really dumb question. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> and having sort of been on the periphery of politics, having gone to my share of DC panel discussions, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to tell a questioner that they had a dumb question and they weren't going to answer it. So I was like, I'm going to watch this for a while. This seems fun. Uh, and, you know, as it went on, he started talking about serious things about trade, immigration, foreign policy. And I was like, you know, at the time, I was like, this is just a joke candidate, like happens every primary. And I was like, this guy's going to win. Um, and so this was a long, you know, to, to date this, uh, I wrote an article for the Weekly Standard that basically said, you know, Trump is a formidable primary contender um, and they published it. Uh, and then time went on and um, through that, some kind of mutual friends kind of connected and people forget how weird the 2016 campaign was um at that time none of the really like republican political operatives liked trump at all they were all sort of ted cruz people or whatever jeb bush people marco rubio people the people that like everyone i knew who liked trump was like a weird person uh in finance who never cared about politics before you know brett easton ellis for a while was really like, he was like a saw he was like anti-anti-trump and like saying like you know kind of friendly things it, it was a, just a totally weird collection of people that were kind of making these points i don't think anyone really thought trump was going to win or whatever but anyway these sorts of weird networks kind of form and a few of my friends some from finance some more academic whatever we were all kind of on the same page and gradually like 
no one would publish pieces that are even remotely favorable to Trump or not even necessarily favorable, but just sort of saying like, oh, these are real issues. Like that was all of a sudden verboten, you know, as it was clear that Trump's front runner status wasn't a fluke. Um, and so in a kind of um, fit of whimsy, we started an anonymous blog called the Journal of American Greatness. It ended up becoming very popular, uh, too popular. Actually, we all had other jobs. We all thought we were going to lose our jobs because people would figure out who we were. Um, so we shut it down shortly after the, the primaries ended. Um, but the whole experience did suggest that people actually were interested in this stuff. So that was basically the genesis of American affairs. And the other thing we discovered, which is odd, is that there was a lot more interest in the kind of long form um, technical almost pieces than your kind of typical hit and run blog post pieces. Mm -hmm. Extended um, tweet threads that get called op eds these days. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought that was kind of interesting because you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't expect a 5,000 word essay on a, you know, a Google blog spot thing with terrible aesthetics. Or yeah. I like to think of it as norm course. <laughs> um, they were very popular. So it was like, well, we should do something. We'll write on our own names. You know, at the time, frankly, everybody thought that Trump was going to lose. Um, but the, there would be a big battle over what the future of the Republican Party would be. Um, well, as of course, you know, Trump won. Uh, but, you know. We still did the uh, the publication and, you know, over the years, uh, it's, you know, if anything, just gotten weirder and weirder. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we I think it's fair to say we, we publish, you know, very high quality authors um, from left, right, center all over the map uh, and have tried to, you know, help illuminate core issues around industrial policy, trade political economy in particular, um, but also also other things in some more theoretical context pieces as well. The conceit that someone and I developed a couple of months ago is that the, the Journal of American Greatness and that entire milieu at the time kind of had three children that each represent a different tendency, perhaps, that could be represented in publications. You have American Greatness, mm -hmm. you have the American Mind, and American affairs. Do you think that's somewhat accurate? Do, do you think that those that, that there is something more specific about what part of that milieu American affairs represents than than the whole of that entire aesthetic and movement? Yeah, no, actually, I think I was talking about this the other day, the kind of different branches of the Journal of American Greatness are very interesting. Um, uh, I, you know, I think one, I think there there is you know, a divergence and, and I'm not, you know, I'm very friendly with uh, American greatness, American mind, n nothing but respect for them. But I, you know, I think we wanted to focus more on kind of like really detailed, frankly, technocratic um, political economy stuff. We tend to do less uh, on the culture war stuff though the two do intersect on issues like woke capital and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one, one essence of it. The other the other part of it um, is, I think, you know, again, in, in 2016, Trump was, you could say, uh, the centrist candidate. Um, he departed from a lot of Republican orthodoxies. And, at the, you know, at the time, his views on trade, on Iraq, on stuff like that, those were not Republican orthodoxies. He was he was attacked for not being conservative enough. Um, and I think, you know, we have. Uh, more than others, perhaps, tried to maintain some of that kind of attempt to engage, you know, across, I would say, old-fashioned sort of partisan ideological divides. Um, 
So we, we will publish a, a lot of left authors on economic topics, on stuff like that. Um, and I think, you know, another compact magazine is now out there too. Um, and they've, they've also adopted um, sort of that strategy. So, you know, uh, hopefully there's something to it, but that would be another kind of, uh, you know, little idiosyncrasy that I think we, we probably do a little more than others. So when it came to the aspects of President Trump's campaign that induced interest from, let's say, that specific set of people on Wall Street that you mentioned, it seems like the primary aspects of like his heresy were, were trade and maybe China for the trade reason as well. Uh, walk me through what specifically it was about the way he was talking that was appealing to that set of people of which you are a member. Yeah, well, he did trade. He did China. Um, uh, he did, uh, you know, on healthcare and stuff. He was he he had he was very open about the fact that like the Republican efforts to totally marketize healthcare um, were never going to happen and and were kind of stupid. Uh, there was a famous debate moment where he was like, um, "We're not going to have people dying in the streets," and Ted Cruz was kind of silent. Um, and and he was also very, I think, my one of one of his. Well, he had two great lines. One is like, "We used to make cars in Michigan, and you couldn't drink the water in Mexico. Now they make cars in Mexico, and you can't drink the water in Michigan. Um, now it's in Mississippi, I guess." But yeah. um, uh, but the other thing he said, he was like, uh, he would always say stuff like, "It's not the conservative party; it's the Republican party," or like, "I'm a conservative, but at this point, who cares?" Yeah. Um, and I think that willingness uh to to sort of you know at least acknowledge uh rhetorically a desire to move beyond kind of conservatism both of of the reaganite form and maybe just the wider sense that like we're conserving something here rather than like well there's not that much left to conserve you got to build something new i think that was interesting and then of course you know on an issue like immigration i think that there there was a kind of economic valence to that that had a sort of broad appeal and there was also um you know the more cultural uh, portions of that, which, you know, were maybe most appealing to the right. Um, but he, you know, for a while, at least sort of brought the two together. The it's the Republican Party, not the conservative party thing is one of the more profound things I think he's ever said, because it 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 went right to the heart of almost a sacred cow that existed on the right. You know, there was this this conservatism studies that you've written about that exists and you know it's almost talmudic in nature you study well did did reagan say it you know you can't you can't oppose any of the the core tenants and he basically threw open the gates and and allowed for for interesting things to be said for the first time and actually people to talk about the problems facing the country in a in a clear-eyed sense as opposed to trying to apply some rubric that someone else had defined 40 years ago um you guys at American Affairs have have then gone much further and, and actually put like meat to the bones on each of the constituent issues across uh, mostly, I would say, economic issues that, that you guys certainly do some other things as well. Uh, I want to hear your assessment of the state of the American economy broadly right now. What, what are the core failures at the center of it? Uh, and then we can dive deeper into some of its constituent elements. Yeah. Um I mean, I think it's I was reading recently, you know, Nixon actually convened a panel in 1971. And the conclusion of that panel was that and I'm basically quoting here. It was American economic superiority is gone. Um, this is 1971. 
Um, and I think we've actually, you know, there was an effort to deal with that um, through the 80s and early 90s. And the Reagan reforms at that time, some of them at least, were, were very appropriate. Um, uh, and then that hardened into an orthodoxy. And then actually it's forgotten now, but the early Clinton campaign ran on a very sort of economically nationalist agenda. They would make fun of the Bush campaign, for example, for getting like buttons made in Mexico, stuff like it's hard to believe now. Uh, and they were very interested in like competing with Japan at the time and, uh, you know, industrial policy. I think they made like the, um, the NEC or one of them, it was supposed, it was a response to like what Japan was doing. That's what it was supposed to be doing. Um, so the point is we've actually been grappling with the uh, loss of competitiveness in key U.S. industries now for 50 years. Um, and what I think happened in the 90s is, is the tech boom happened. And what people saw from that, what they took from that was that we're going into a new economy now. All the old stuff doesn't matter. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, losing manufacturing, stuff like that. Everybody's going to do the Internet. Um, and that and, and really, first of all, I mean, the tech boom, a lot of it was just the kind of last gasp of U.S. Cold War industrial policy. Um, and once it got taken over by purely private sector sort of consumer oriented firms, it, you know, it stopped producing productivity, enhancing technologies. It made uh, destructive social media and profitless sharing economy companies. Uh, like we work and stuff like that. Uber is going to be profitable. Just give it another yeah, decade. <laughs> <laughs> Any minute now. Um, and, and then at the same time, it, it, you know, because of the view that we didn't have to worry about kind of old fashioned industries and competition anymore, we basically, you know, not just let, uh, China rise to what it is and, and take over certain key supply chains and industries, but actively encouraged it. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, um, you know, and then the tech boom fizzled and we covered it up with the housing boom. Uh, and then since the financial crisis, I think it's been a long, slow recognition uh, back to 1971 that actually American economic support superiority is gone. We have real problems. Um, and, you know, today we're in a situation where uh, we basically have to transition from a financialized economy that emphasizes what, you know, I would call sort of asset valuation uh, over actual earnings and growth uh, and, um, you know, intellectual property rents uh, over, you know, hard tech and physical capital. Um, and I think we're only now just beginning to kind of seriously grapple with these things and get back to the kind of positions we were in in the early 90s and, and, and 1971, uh, which, we've, which we've avoided for a long time and, and are now paying the price for. The tech boom being a, a salve to what was already a declining economy is really interesting to me because I think so many of the things that have been done at a policy level over the last 20 to 30 years in the U.S. have fulfilled the same function as things that made it feel like we were still in a growing real economy, uh, just various like spigots that the machine was able to turn on that that gave a false sense of, uh, of, of, of sleepiness. You know, immigration in some cases, one of those things, right? Like when you have an education system that's fundamentally incapable of actually generating the talent that uh, 
you know, creates great technology, but you can solve it with immigration, you don't feel that problem for a while. Right. Outsourcing increases GDP growth when you go from one income households to two income households. There, There's all these things that we could see that, that yep. made it so that it didn't feel that bad. Should it have? I mean, th- that's the question I have for you is that if things were getting worse, why didn't it feel that way enough such that it would inspire a different response from policymakers? Um, well, it's I mean, it did inspire responses. Uh, it just actually going back to restructuring and, and laying the foundations for serious industrial competitiveness is sort of the hardest solution out there. It's very difficult to do that. Um, and, and no one's had any real experience of that, um, you know, in, in living memory, even, mm-hmm. even in the 1990s. The other part of it was, um, you know, one of the reasons this happened in the first place is during the Cold War, we basically made asymmetric trade part of the strategy of containing the Soviet Union. So we gave uh, our allies, uh, you know, access to our markets and, you know, without while letting them retain very high tariffs. Um, And initially that didn't matter. But by the 60s and 70s, Germany, Japan, they were serious competitors. That that was the first crisis. Um, The other part of it is because of because of that asymmetric strategy, what U.S. companies sought to do um, is actually outsourcing and offshoring really began at that time because you, to get under the Japanese tariff wall or whatever, you put your factory in Japan. Uh, and so they were already very conditioned. Uh, that was already their sort of natural strategy, um, even before things you know really hit the fan, um, you know, later in the 90s or 2000s. And then once once you created the opportunity for China, uh, you know, that that accelerated that uh, even more. And it seemed to work for a while. Um, so I think, the you know, the problem is that actually like like any political problem, actually fixing the underlying issue is always the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And in the short term, it's always easier to do to do other things, uh, even though they may just prolong the reckoning or exacerbate the problem in the end. I, I think that's mostly what we've done. We also, I think, our general, the, the general sort of neoliberal political culture, uh, as much as I hate to use that word, but it, it tends to, we just sort of morally adopted this position that you don't really have to plan and execute. That's not the government's job. The government sort of politicians issue like a moral goal that they want and then like it just magically happens not just in economics but even like a lot of our foreign policies like oh well we'll remove this dictator and like liberal democracy will inevitably flourish because that's what everybody wants uh and i think that's been um you know another cause of this is is not even necessarily the neoliberal policy per se but the that that framework that um you know, the invisible hand or whatever you want to call it magically happens by accident. You don't actually have to plan and execute. So you mentioned that it was some sort of neoliberal consensus that that helped drive this. What's your kind of personal history of that? Did it exist in both parties and rise simultaneously? Was it one then the other? How did the kind of bipartisan corruption and, and loss of any interest in doing real things with our economy? How did that come about? Um, there's a new book on this, actually, by Gary Gersel, 
called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. And um, I'm reviewing it for Claremont, actually. Um, but it's such a good book, I'm actually just going to steal it. Uh, mm -hmm. But he argues, you know, that there were really there were really two sort of moral frameworks behind neoliberalism all along. There was the sort of right wing version, which is sort of neo-Victorian moral moral code, work hard, self-responsibility, self-reliance, law and order, that sort of thing. Political and, Protestantism, essentially. Um, could well be. And then there was, well, there's many valences yeah, of sure. political Protestantism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, one of the most prominent now. But on that note, the other valence was, um, he calls it cosmopolitanism, which sort of emphasizes, you know, multiculturalism and self-creation, self-expression, the kind of fluidity of market society. And I think, especially for a, a, I think the author Gersel would call himself left wing. He more systematically than anyone else I've seen really goes through and documents the kind of left wing version of this. And so you had, you know, nobody really knows this, I think, but like Murray Rothbard edited a book bringing together like new left at 60s, new left uh, people for kind of neoliberalism. Um, and then there were obviously other just like like Ralph Nader was a consumer welfare guy and Robert Bork was a consumer welfare guy. People wanting the same things for different reasons. Uh, and so that on the one hand, you had this very intense culture war on the surface between the neo-Victorians and the cosmopolitans, let's say. Well, underneath, they both kind of wanted the same political economy for different reasons. So policy always sort of overlapped um, in that direction. And then, you know, again, like I mentioned, there were the material factors too: the asymmetric trade, um, U.S. oil production peaks in 1970, energy costs start rising even before the, the big crises. Um, so that that I think, you know, there definitely there have always been right and left strains of uh, of neoliberalism. And if anything, I would say that, you know, if you wanted to explain the ascendancy of left neoliberalism, it's that. The right wing version is perhaps very harsh, but it's also pretty honest. It sort of says we're doing this because it's going to deliver economic results and, and it's also going to produce like a, a, a good traditional culture. Um, the economic results haven't been there for about 20 years. I don't think anyone can seriously think that woke capital and the business community are really big fans of traditional values today. Um, so that it's, you know, that's falling apart. Uh, left neoliberalism, however, even if your economy sucks, you can always talk about um, a new identity you just created. So that that still seems to be intact. Yeah, they they have more easy outs than mm. than we do on mm -hmm. a regular basis. The classic retort that's given to the story of decline for the last seventy years in the American economy is that post World War II period was anachronistic. It was a particular peak that we experienced because the rest of the world was bombed out. Why do you think that that's that's not quite the whole story or, or what, why is that not a an easy? Well, you're being unreasonable for asking for more than that. Well, it's certainly true that uh, the post-World War II period was exceptional and that level in, of industrial dominance probably could not have been maintained uh, forever. But we also made very specific uh, policy choices that um, undermined uh, a number of, of key industries um, to the point where, you know, right now, like we did this whole deal with uh, Australia and and UK on submarines and we can't actually build the submarines. Um, you didn't have to 
actually, even if even if you uh, Japan and Germany's manufacturing industries rose or China's rose, um, the U.S. has undergone su uh, such a, a much deeper loss. You know, G Germany, for instance, um, like their manufacturing uh, share has gone down globally, um, but their manufacturing as a share of GDP has gone down much less. Uh, Korea, for example, same thing. We made conscious choices to essentially undermine a lot of those sectors um, and and adjacent sectors too. Uh, that made it made you know eroded both our economic and uh, security position uh, much much worse than would would otherwise have been. And what are the primary inducements that caused that? Was it the failure to take affirmative steps? after the easy years went away to shore up our own ability to stay competitive? Or was it specific policy choices that were made, policies passed uh, in trade or finance or what have you, that that caused our competitiveness to decline? Obviously, the answer is probably both, but what, what do you think has the edge? Um, I'm, I've sort of mentioned um, stuff about like the Cold War trade policies and then the, the post-Cold War trade policies that doubled down on that. Um, and, and the choice to sort of privilege, well, I maybe didn't talk about this that much, but you know, we made sort of conscious choices to privilege intellectual property rents mm -hmm. over physical production uh, that I don't think people necessarily knew what the full effects would be. Um, but what actually happened is be, because of financial reasons, uh, an intellectual property rent is always worth more in the market. It will always trade at a higher value mm -hmm. than say a very capital intensive cyclical manufacturing business, uh, which much harder to main maintain. You have to continually invest in it. You have marginal expansion costs. You probably have a bigger labor force. You have unions. You have to keep it running at you know as close to 100% capacity as you can all the time. You've got environmental issues, which is another area that we did um, without a lot of thought given to what that would do to our industrial base. Um, so anyway, all those together have created an economy where financially, if if you are a corporation, your goal is to separate your income generating intellectual property rent as far as possible from labor and capital investment costs. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental, that was the fundamental driver for the past 20 years. Um, and it remains the fundamental issue today that I, I don't think um, we're nowhere close to dealing with yet. And I, to give one example, you know, I, the um, the Trump administration wanted to get Cisco to buy Ericsson, the phone manufacturing business, in order to compete with Huawei. Um, now, primarily I, telecom infrastructure. Telecom, yeah. yeah. Now I don't know the whole story behind that, but for Cisco. Like no matter how much money you gave them, that would never make sense because they would basically go from a very asset light uh, income model that would trade at a very high valuation to having this like manufacturing business that would trade at a much lower mm -hmm. multiple. Um, so you just have fundamental issues with the way that our financial incentives have become structured uh, that make it very difficult to to build these industries, especially when Asia and China in particular are subsidizing the very same industries. And we're uh, maybe not anymore uh, turning a blind eye to it, but certainly we're uh, for, for the bulk of this period. So this is one particular narrow concept that I think is very useful to understand maybe some of the system-wide issues in our economy. Uh, tell me a little bit more about 
these concepts of multiples and how capital intensive uh, industries have a, a trade at much lower ones than than capital light ones. You know, for instance, like software as a service companies will trade at like 10x their multiples. Oh, Ridiculous. That, I mean, yeah. uh, just 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 absolutely absurd numbers. And then when it goes down to 7x, they call that a recession. Like it's just it's one of the dumbest things in the entire world. Um, uh, just lay out in 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 uh, you know specific terms uh, why that is and, and the incentives that creates in the financial industry. To, to prioritize one above the other. Right. So basically any asset um, produces an income stream or at least theoretically does. Some of the tech ones, <laughs> but in theory they do. Um, and basically when you look at the value of the company, it's some multiple of that income stream. Um, and basically the more, the more stable that income stream is and the less capital you need to put into it to maintain that income stream, uh, the more value it, valuable it is. Um, so you want that you, you hear this from time to time, like every company wants to be a tech company or, you know, Tesla, when they talk about stuff, they, they, they talk about turning it, you know, having it function like a software company, mm-hmm. or you see it now, I think it was BMW that started like charging people a monthly subscription fee for the hidden or for the heated seats. Yes. Like that's the point. Yeah. They want to make these companies' revenue models look as much as possible like a pure intellectual property rent Mm -hmm. because- Which is like a zero cost of acquisition customer pipeline in some ways. Yeah. Um, You know, an intellectual property rent is a government-granted monopoly. Um, And you you just get paid and you don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that um, just is inherent by the laws of finance, if such a thing exists, is just inherently more valuable- um, than say a manufacturing business where you have to put in a lot of money every year to maintain it, where you have um, labor issues you may have to deal with, environmental issues, uh, where you know if you want to expand, you got to put in more money. Um, that that's how the multiples work. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know there's a couple key inputs. The other input, of course, is uh, interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know it'll be it's interesting to see how much of the uh, the tech sector, you know, uh, how vul- that's that's why it's also so vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, to this because it's, it's a very sort of high duration asset. So what is it that other countries or even ours has done in the past to balance what seems like a natural advantage that these vaporware-esque companies would have over capital intensive things that are core to a national interest? Uh, well, how, how do you rebalance the scales in terms of the uh, relative uh, advantageousness of, of investing in one versus the other. The most direct thing that anyone has done that I'm aware of is what Israel did, which basically it, they made a law that said any intellectual property you create um, with government research funding, which was you know the vast majority of them, you could not license production of that technology outside the state of Israel. Um, so as a result, people had to go and get investment in Israel to build the factories, to build these products. And Eventually, they watered it down to you'd have to pay a fine to license it abroad. And eventually, the kind of venture capitalists in Israel uh, got rid of it entirely in the, in the last few years. Um, but the results of that program, you know, that it, it did get a lot of manufacturing created. And had you had something like that in the United States, um, you'd have had a whole different scenario. Because I think it probably is the case um, plausibly that you're, you're not going to reintegrate companies like you had in the 50s. Uh, anymore. Um, but you didn't necessarily have to see them 
move outside the country uh, and go to China. Um, the other the other thing is just to have you know stricter trade controls in general um, or subsidized manufacturing uh, to to make that at least more competitive uh, for financial investors. I think given where the U.S. is today. Um, and it, you know, it's very clear that, uh, we're not passing an Israel style law like that anytime soon. Um, there shall be autarky <laughs> <laughs> one bill. <laughs> we should probably, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good uh, editorial line yeah. for uh, some publication. Yeah. Um, we should think about actually like using, like we have this huge private equity, uh, investment world and, um, for the most part, they go out and look for SaaS companies and increasingly they're going into healthcare and education and all kinds of reg- health, you know, all kinds of regulated sectors. Um, it's probably going to be a disaster for them, um, at least public relations wise. But we could actually, I think, very easily uh, or at least within the kind of parameters of recent years U.S. policy, subsidize private equity investments into manufacturing facilities such that they could put up the capital for the plant and then bring in a third party operator to run it much like they do with other industries anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as opposed to the corporate level at the investor level, you don't really have to worry about all that multiple stuff and the capital efficiency metrics. All they really have to care about is IRR financial returns. So it's much easier to subsidize. um, And I think, you know, it would actually make money for them. uh, So they in theory should like it. That's the sort of direction that I would like to see us uh, at least take a look at, um, just given where we are and the practical realities of policymaking at present. Do you think that there's a labor shortage that would become operative if we did something like that in terms of the people who are capable of running those kinds of businesses in the first place? Um, I had a discussion with someone a couple of days ago about you know what the distinction between your modern tech founder is versus someone who who's in charge of a factory. And it's a very different skill set. It's a very different approach to business. And uh, it's much more real. But like, would it would it be an acute problem, you think? My sense is at the very top level, it's less of an issue. Um, and it's not all that hard to say, bring in a Canadian pharma operator to actually run the factory. Yeah. Um, much like a private equity firm would bring in a third party to run the hotel that they own. Mm-hmm. Where I think there is an issue is on, um, you know, the larger labor labor front, actually, the, the workers. Um, now, of course, you know, you need less and less labor for these things. There's more and more robotics. Um, but there's already essentially a, a manufacturing, you know, skill shortage, uh, which is what happens when you destroy your industry mm-hmm. uh, over the years. And there's no real economic reason for people to acquire these skills. Um but that's why, you know, uh, serious policies like this would would also need um, serious education reform and, and vocational training, which I think we are talking about. I don't know if any of it's going to get done, um, but uh, there is discussion of that. But the bigger problem, you can train all the people you want if you don't actually ha- if investors are not incentivized to actually finance the factories and build the factories, um, you know, a, they won't have anything to do, and B, the next generation will not have any reason to learn those skills, which is what's happened to us. So the private equity firms right now, they're they're not, you know, picking up factories and and making them really productive and making money that way. Uh, so what are they doing? What what is what is Wall Street? I mean, financial sector is a third of our economy. What what does Wall Street mostly do? <laughs> um, well, I just I mean, there is 
it's a very small percentage of total private equity assets under management that goes into manufacturing. Um, but it's still a pretty big number. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like none of them have any experience with this. And it's more than, you know, a venture capital puts into to these sorts of hard tech things. Um, yeah, I mean, Wall Street's a big topic. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't pretend to, to you know, a, a lot of, you know, the trends in recent years have been less toward actually like active management. I'm going to buy this company uh, because I really care about it and think it's great. Uh, it's been more, uh, you know, on the public side, index funds and sort of quantitative trading, um, stuff like that. And on the on the more active on the private equity side, you know, the hot trends recently, in addition to like SaaS companies and, you know, roll ups and sort of market power oriented acquisitions, um, you know, uh, residential housing. Uh, has been the big one. And, you know, that's, again, another area where I think, you know, their business models are to explicitly get people who have children in school. You know, this is not like a one room apartment for some guy out of college that if you raise the rent 10 percent, they'll just move. Um, You know, the the point is to lock in families uh, and and be able to raise the rent uh, very high. Mm -hmm. The other part of it, you know, in some markets like Atlanta area, I think, you know, 40 percent of home purchases in recent quarters were institutional buyers adding homes to their portfolio. And they are that's very difficult for your average home buyer because now you're competing against uh, a, a large firm that doesn't need mortgages. They have they're paying cash right away. They don't care about like inspections and if the house is damaged or whatever, because they're going to go in and fix it anyway. Um, so, you know, there's been plenty of, plenty of discussion about this. We, we published an article with the wall street journal actually by the same author, um, has published a lot on this and, and others have talked about it, but the, the move of private equity into residential homes, you know, uh, has, it's been very profitable, uh, since the financial crisis, but, you know, does have the potential to, to blow up politically, uh, in a big way with, with all kinds of unintended consequences. So we'll see how that plays out. Well, not only does our middle class have to compete with these institutional investors, they also have to compete with compete with the upper middle class and wealthy people of the rest of the world. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so the the, the foreign uh, uh, incentives on this are are also bad. Um, you know, the uh, when, when you talk about the quantitative um, lean at a lot of these um, you know hedge funds and, and other financial institutions, uh, what do you think the upshot of that is? Uh, you know, it used to be it, it feels like the emergence of that sector was how to gain an edge over a market where most people are doing something else. But as more and more firms adopt that model, do you think it's just creating like a tinderbox in the entire financial industry and it'll all explode one day or? In general, I think probably the high frequency trading stuff is the more benign um, element of it. Like some people have a lot of concern, at least they did. I think Michael Lewis wrote a book about it, about, oh, you know, this is going to disadvantage investors and stuff like that. I don't see a whole lot of evidence of that. Where I think the problem is, is that this is just sort of pure speculation. Um, And if you're concerned about allocating capital uh, to the industries that need it, this really does absolutely nothing for that. Um, there is also another, you know, uh, kind of questions that I don't think are answered yet 
as to whether a lot of this stuff, particularly in like um, derivatives and volatility trading, whether, you know, that all adds up to being sort of very pro-cyclical. And if you actually did get a big crash, uh, would that would that unravel in, in a very destructive way? I frankly don't know the answer to that question, um, but it is a valid question, I think. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason the financial industry uh, has has grown so much has been uh, what seems like the the relative lack of consistency or or at least intention behind our monetary policy. What's your assessment more broadly of kind of how how American monetary policy has been over the past twenty years and where the left and the right may get it wrong? Um. In general, I think monetary policy has been one of those things where instead of like addressing the real problem, um, you print money and sort of make the symptoms go away for Mm -hmm. a little while. Uh, I would say um, certainly in the lead up to the financial crisis, there were some monetary policy mistakes. Since then, I think it's easy to blame the Fed, um, but I think the Fed really doesn't have any options because there's no... um, hasn't really been any serious fiscal or or policy effort to address the underlying issues. And a lot of financialization, just to take a step back, is really just the the erosion of the capital intensive sectors of the economy. Um, So instead of capital going into building new greenfield projects or whatever, it basically goes into inflating the prices of existing financial assets. Um, And so the Fed basically has had a choice um, of you know, doing nothing in the midst of recession versus inflating financial assets and sort of improving, improving, you know, that one outcome, the kind of just base GDP number or whatever, a little bit. Uh, and they've, they've chosen that. Um, but, you know, it's obviously not a real solution. Are the gold bugs right then? Do we just need to tighten the money supply? Go back to hard money? Um. I actually, you know, I used to consider myself more dovish on on Fed stuff. And, you know, I think if we were really in an environment where we were we were making real investments, um, I would I would go back to that. And it's like we, we need to make these investments. Um, you, you know, you need to accommodate that if you have, you know, three percent inflation or whatever in the long term, you're still better off. But because we're not actually making uh, the sort of investments that I think we need to make. Uh, I'm actually much more uh, welcoming of higher interest rates, um, not for the gold bug reasons, uh, which don't really make any sense, but simply because getting rid of all this speculative froth um, in, in Silicon Valley, in crypto, and all these virtual industries uh, is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and And making those sorts of pure asset value speculation uh, type of type of businesses uh, less attractive relative to uh, real businesses that generate um, real incomes, I think is is a good thing. So, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly. I think we'll, we'll need to do much more than simply raising interest rates to deal with inflation. I think, um, you know, I, I get to sound like a Reaganite here. I think we need a real <laughs> supply side uh, uh, approach to this as well, which today doesn't just involve cutting taxes, but actually supporting investment in core industries. Um, but, you know, a high higher interest rate certainly right now, I think could be 
beneficial to that um, if for no other reason than it makes kind of the pure non-income driven financial speculation less attractive. Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something financial situation of our country right now is purely vibes based and kind of cheeky. It's like you can't sustain a real currency It's certainly not a reserve currency off of people with fake email jobs and calling each other racist for a living like that. There's no there's no core productive industry backing up the value of our currency. I mean, in terms of a global competitive level, do, do, what do you make of the the attenuation of of the U- US dollar as the the world's reserve currency? Do you think that's likely to happen? Do you think it's we're playing with fire right now with our policies because of that? Um, I think it, it is happening. Um, and it's mainly, you know, when when you sanctioned Russia, it, it was this was sort of happening very slowly anyway. I think China was building kind of, you know, very tentatively some new architectures and frameworks. Um, but now kind of with Russia and, and all that has gone on, uh, that has been accelerated um, very rapidly. And and Russia has built its own sort of internal financial infrastructure. It's had to. And of course, um, the China-Russia integration that is proceeding as a result of this, uh, and because it's cut off from Western financial system, they have no choice uh, but to build their own financial system. And you're seeing increasingly uh, China, China setting up uh, RMB terms, you know, its own currency terms with with its trading partners. I think that will only accelerate. And the way these things go is, um, you know, every country that leaves your your financial system joins the other one. So you get weaker and they get stronger. Um, you know, the the value of the dollar or whatever, that's that's a different thing, at least in the short term. And you know the euro is not not going to offer much competition, but um, the actual financial infrastructure and payments infrastructure and trade infrastructure uh, that I think is underway, and I don't think many people here in D.C. really appreciate uh, the significance of that. Um, I mean, even before this, actually, China had set up its own kind of state-backed cryptocurrency system to allow it to make kind of foreign transactions outside of. Uh, outside of the US system. So um, this 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 stuff was happening. It's only accelerating. Do you think that cryptocurrency at its most pure, the existence of digital currencies more broadly, but specifically things like Bitcoin, completely banal, unnecessary to the financial system? Do you think there's a nugget of usefulness there? Uh, what's your I mean, obviously, the, you know, Dogecoin sitting at several hundred million dollars in market value or more than that is ridiculous. But yeah, I don't like Bitcoin and the other purely financial ones, like I don't see them doing anything that gold like didn't do before, mm-hmm. um, except maybe allowing a few more hucksters to to do it. Uh, like the idea that, you know, crypto is going to allow you to to escape government censorship or control or whatever. 
that may be true for like a very small group of highly motivated, highly skilled and well-resourced people. Um, but that was also true in the traditional financial mm-hmm. system. And your average normie on Coinbase, I'm sorry, like you're not, <laughs> you're not any more free. Yeah. Um, the, you know, whether blockchain actually is a, a, a big technological breakthrough, I guess, you know, it's still possible to hold out hope for that. I wouldn't completely rule it out. But I haven't really seen any 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 blockchain based technologies that promise to like do anything better mm-hmm. than a centralized database. They're Just sort differently. Of like, <laughs> yeah, they're sort of like you can have your social network, but you won't get censored off it. But like only a very small number of people really care about that. I mm-hmm. think if we're being honest and very few people want to run their own servers. So until like Web3 or whatever, I think they're going to have to rebrand it now. But uh, after the carnage in the market, (laughs) like unless that actually offers like you can do something really new and something no one has done before, uh, I'm I'm increasingly pessimistic on it. What do you make of the, you know, consumer side, middle class side aspects of, of the appeal of things like cryptocurrency? Just the fact that it's very difficult for someone in the middle class to find returns in this market? Where do you think that comes from? Uh, And do do you think it's downstream of all these other things we've been talking about or or due to something else? Well, um, there's a fascinating economist named Reuven Brenner, um, who, you know, a lot of his work was basically going to show that for the average person, gambling is totally rational because (laughs) there's no no other place will you be able to, to get returns like that, that can, you know, take you from, you know, whatever, uh, average working class person barely making ends meet to, you know, really rich. Um, so, you know, even if the probability is infinitesimally small, like it can still be rational. And I think that's basically, uh, the same thing with a lot of the crypto stuff. In addition to the fact that we have built our entire economy around, um, profitless financial speculation. So, why why not do crypto too and you know it's not just i mean arguably at this point the sort of retail crypto stuff is less less important than the really big finance involvement in crypto anyway i mean i don't think you know uh it's really plausible anymore to say that like bitcoin is like just a you know people driven thing wall street uh and wall street adjacent stuff is, is you know very much in control of that uh but on the side of, um, you know, in terms of why middle class people aren't able to really find returns in this market, why is it that just, you know, playing normal stocks, we live in a financialized economy, right? Why is it that uh, a middle class person isn't able to get meaningful returns there? Well, I don't I mean, I I don't know that I, you know, the best investment of the last few years has just been in, uh, an S&P index fund. Mm-hmm. Um actual like hedge funds and stuff, their performance is not very good. Mm-hmm. I think it is, it's not so much that the average person, no matter how small the investment is, can't get a return in terms of like, you know, 30%, whatever the S&P went up, they can get that. The problem is that, you know, the way that capital accumulation inherently works is that the guy who puts in a billion dollars getting 30% becomes vastly richer than the guy with a thousand dollars getting thirty mm-hmm. percent. So they're getting the same return returns, um, but the distance between uh, the really large capital holder and the very small capital holder only grows wider and wider the larger the returns are. Do you think that it's a healthy aspect of our economy that we tie the 
contours of most of the economy's retirement to things like uh, how the financial sector is doing? That's a really interesting question um, because I think it's actually had a very a very large impact. Um, and it's something I don't think when the libertarians thought about like marketizing retirement, I don't think they really thought through the ramifications of once everybody's retirement is tied to the market, now a big decline in the market becomes, you know, or even a you know relatively medium-sized decline in the market becomes a major social and political issue. Um, so, you know, where in the past, uh, stock market going down, say 15%, um, you know, it would have had an effect, but the average guy working at GM wouldn't really matter at all. Wouldn't matter to his pension, wouldn't matter to his job. Today, when you have, you know, all your retirees and they all vote, um, you know, that being the most important thing in their life, that makes the Fed and and the government generally much less likely to allow the sort of natural market corrections that the libertarians theoretically want. Um, so the the whole marketization approach kind of has that inherent contradiction and, and breeds government involvement and in sort of propping up propping up markets and, and AUMs through Fed policy or whatever. It turns a relationship between the middle class and Wall Street into a suicide pact, essentially. It's like, okay, you want to let us go down? You want us to let us fail? <laughs> Good luck. That's right. I mean, you can't let Wall Street fail anymore without yeah. letting, you know, all your retirees fail. Has there been actual consistent stability across the last 20 to 30 years in terms of which institutions dominate on Wall Street? Or do you find that there's actually churn uh, in these firms? Are there new players coming in? Or is it is it real institutional capital? It's the same people and it's been the same people. Um, well, at the level of like firms themselves, yeah. there's been a lot of churn, uh, you know, um, remember Lehman Brothers? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, they were they were like a top three or top five bank. Um, you know, it's if you talk to anyone whose you know career has been in finance, like I, most likely the firm they started out working for no longer exists. Um, mm -hmm. You know what? The, one of the most influential firms of the of the eighties was Salomon Brothers. You know, and they died in the nineties. And um, you know, Lehman is one example. And GE had a big financial thing, and that was a disaster. And they got rid of that. Um, so in that sense, there's been a lot of churn. Um, it's a you know. And, and hedge funds churn all the time. I think, you know, more recently, the private equity sector is different because size and scale gives you sort of durable advantages there. Buying um, power. It Yeah, you'll be the first one to get a call. Mm -hmm. um, for one, if you have, you know, more, you can do bigger deals that no one else can do. Um, you'll be the first one to get a call uh, when, when a company wants to sell, cause you know, you have a good reputation and you're, you're more powerful, that sort of thing. You could pay more. Um, so there, ha I think there is a durability in the, in the private equity industry, which is why, you know, the big Blackstone, KKR, Carlisle, more recently, Apollo, you know, they have been dominating that industry for decades now. And I, it also seems like in the index fund world scale, um, Scale benefits a lot. So BlackRock, Vanguard, that's been pretty stable. They've done some acquisitions of each other. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, it's it varies from sector to sector in Wall Street. But I think maybe the increasing the increasing stability of of the the dominant industries now, index funds and private equity, might might herald uh, some some 
more concerns of, you know, just kind of general stasis going forward. So I remember when the first news stories about asset managers buying up significant amounts of residential housing came about and I started sending them to members of Congress and they actually were some early interest in all that. It seems like that's now starting to snowball and there genuinely will be kind of grassroots mainstream interest in some sort of corrective policy towards these large financial institutions. Do you like what you're seeing so far? Do you think it's going to be profoundly stupid? How would you direct this energy against these institutions if you could? Well, no one's really come up with a, um, I mean, the only real solution to doing this is to basically prohibit it by law. Uh, You could put different conditions around that, like after X amount of homes in a certain area, then the, you know, then the prohibition goes into effect or if housing prices rise by X in this area, you can, you can make it conditional. Make it like low income housing, you can make but, for, it more but for asset flexible. managers, like a certain percentage of your homes have to. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, like, you know, these things got their start in after the financial crisis, when you had a ton of foreclosed homes and no buyers. And, and that's what made it, you know, interesting and attractive. You also like, they also recognize that everyone who gets kicked out or foreclosed on their home is now a renter. Um, <laughs> so it was very, very intelligent <laughs> business model. Um <laughs> Uh, and if you have really distressed areas with a lot of empty houses, having institutional investors buy them and renovate them may not be the craziest thing in the world. Um, it's when it starts competing and pricing out all your ordinary middle class you know, buyers that it becomes a problem. Um, so it's just it's very complicated. Like It's hard to imagine. You know, Congress can't do carried interest loopholes like it seems very hard to imagine them prohibiting. Uh, institutional acquisitions of single family homes. But you never know. Um, But unfortunately, I think that's the only real way to deal with it. The other, I mean, Canada did, or Vancouver at least did something with like foreign home buyers where, you know- Trudeau ran on it. (laughs) There's a special tax, right? If if you're an absentee, you know, unoccupied housing, Um, you know, most of these things are occupied. So I don't think that would work quite as well. Um, But, you know, as the problem- well, I think there's two options. One is that, you know, as with other private equity uh, target areas, like you get so much competition for it that it just becomes a much less attractive business model and rising interest rates, et cetera. Maybe they just naturally pull back from it. I wouldn't expect that, but it's possible. Um, that's one option. The other option is some way, conditional or otherwise, to just ban the practice. Um, and that's very politically difficult. Yeah. It- Maybe I'm just less cynical, but I, I, I'm almost concerned that it will be doable and that it'll be seen as the the one simple trick to fix your financial sector. Like it, it could get done or some sort of meaningful restriction could happen. And then that'll be the excuse to say, well, we fixed the financial industry. Goodbye. We're good. We're good for another you know couple of decades before things get really bad. Um, maybe I'm, I'm wrong about that. W- on the flip side of this, again, uh, you know, so many middle class people in the United States, they store significant amounts of their net worth in their home. And if so, if the demand for these assets went down, the, their net worths would also go down. I mean, how, how do you untie that Gordian's knot in terms of the incentive structure if if decreasing the competitive environment for residential real estate makes people home home values not go up as much or go down. Well, that's I mean, I think that's part of the politically difficult issue because incumbent homeowners um, really have no objection to this. Uh, 
maybe if like these neighborhoods become like really transient or something, maybe they would not like it as much. But in general, they have no objection. They're they're very supportive because it pushes prices up. Mm. Um, and it, and incumbent homeowners are uh, a very powerful political constituency. As boomers, are, as are <laughs> old people, yeah. as are realtors um, who also like it. Um, although they may like it much less as these things get bigger in scale and you have less room for realtors and you can negotiate prices, you know, lower or whatever. Um, I, you know, look, we for, uh, you know, hundreds of years had functional, uh, healthy single family home markets without institutional buyers. I don't think it's, you know, impossible not to have that, but certainly, you know, if, if you get a sense of inflated, uh, home prices, uh, this contributes to that, it makes it more politically difficult. Do you think that either political party is well set up to actually meaningfully respond to these problems that we've been talking about? Um, both of them have major obstacles. Uh, what I, I think it actually is interesting. Um, and you know, I can, I can really frighten your audience here, but maybe in a good way. I mean, I, I think the democratic party is, is moving further and further along on this stuff. I mean, I think they've sort of taken over most of the industrial policy and competitiveness dynamic. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're, they're actually, I mean, they're the ones, they, they call it supply side progressivism, but how they took over the supply side mantle from the Republican Party, um, you know, that's a deafening political failure on the Republican side. They're talking. Can, can you say more about what you mean by that? Um, so you, I, the the meaning of supply side, well, like or the supply, Democratic the, Party the concept of supply side progressivism yeah. and, and what they what they took in terms of a core aspect of what conservatives could have been advancing right. politically. Um, so supply side, just to put it, you know, there's demand side and supply side. In the simplest terms, demand side is like, oh, homes are too expensive. Give people more money. There are obvious problems with that, namely inflation. That's what you ran into in the 70s. The other ish side is, well, you could increase the supply. So make it easier to build homes, uh, create incentives for people to invest in homes, um, change the tax code to make uh, unoccupied housing um, less attractive. Mm -hmm. uh, you increase the supply side and therefore in increase the availability of the public good and lowering the cost is just as good as giving people money, right? Um, and of course, uh, back in the 80s, um, Reagan's program was called supply side economics. And at that time, I would say you know, at least parts of it made a lot of sense because you basically had you had high inflation, you had very high tax rates, uh, whatever, you know, 70, 80 percent or whatever. Um, and, you know, other dynamics that made investment very unattractive. Um, and so most capital at that time was flowing into, the, you know, fairly counterproductive inflation sort of protection financial strategies um cut taxes dealt with that you got for a brief period a lot of new investment uh going that was great um unfortunately as time has gone on um all the market dynamics we've talking about and we've spoken about have made have made uh you know those sorts of financial investments less attractive and cutting taxes doesn't really do anything for that. It just gives people more money to speculate in financial markets and asset values go up. It's not really a supply side strategy anymore. Um, what, you know, what supply side progressivism is, is, you know, uh, it has obviously a kind of left wing aspect to it. So they tend to emphasize things like healthcare, housing, um, environmental stuff, but it's basically the same, 
you know, they're addressing the supply side issue and they recognize very clearly that, you know, cutting taxes is not going to do the job and, you know, some kind of public investment or changing of public incentives is needed. Uh, as a general framework, uh, they're exactly right, in my opinion. I'm not saying, you know, they get every specific policy right uh, or there isn't a lot of great things that Republicans could add to this if they were serious about it. Um, but they have, I think, taken over that discourse. There are also, you know, if you want to talk about nuclear energy right now, um, it's the kind of, you know, fashionable Democratic think tanks that are talking about that more. Uh, they're even doing environmental permitting reform. They have more advanced plans on environmental permitting than the Republicans do. Um, so I think that, you know, at the same time, they have major obstacles uh, with the, the, the whole wokeness uh, stuff and all of that. And I'm not saying they don't. Um, but the fact that they have taken over um, so much of the supply side policy, which has traditionally been a Republican focus, um, I think is, is a, should be a real shock to Republicans. And, and I think if, you know, the midterm results are kind of deteriorating, that may be one reason why. On the Republican side, you know, the big obstacle, I don't know that it's so much policy wise because, um, you know, I, admittedly, the big policy places aren't necessarily doing much. But there are uh, a lot of great groups uh, that you know of um, that are. But the donor community just really isn't there. People donate to the Republican Party because they want to obstruct things because they don't want to do anything. Um, and until that changes, just feels very difficult for the Republican Party to really put forward uh, the positive agenda, which is unfortunate because, you know, they have they are free from a lot of the uh, the obstacles that hinder the Democrats, um, but they uh, they're they're just not really ready for positive, constructive solutions yet. Do you think we're in a better place today on that, uh, on on making the right more useful to these questions than we were maybe, let's say, halfway through the Trump administration? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, in some ways, I think, you know, when you're in power, people were actually sort of trying to do things. Um, and the Trump administration, you know, in my opinion, it was hit and miss. Like, you know, it was one step forward, one step back in a lot of areas. Like they would do some good stuff on trade and then they would cut like manufacturing programs in the U.S. Um, but it felt like there was kind of an atmosphere of like we need to do positive stuff. Uh, now, I think being out of power and the Republican strategy for the midterms is just don't be a Democrat. I think even though some of the intellectual stuff has probably moved a long way forward at the political level, uh, it seems maybe a little more stuck uh, than it has been. Do, what do you think the path to building an elite coalition that's interested in doing this would look like? Is it possible? To me, the major thing is to find an actual lobby um, within. And, and it's interesting how much I think, you know, corporate lobbies when it comes to at least economic policy, and I think policymaking generally are so much more effective than like individuals or, or private, you know, uh, philanthropies. Um, you know, like uh, Tesla, having Tesla on your side is worth much more than having Elon Musk on your side uh, right. when you want to actually change economic policy. Um, so finding... Uh, an actual lobbying coalition within within the sort of Republican orbit uh, that would want to push the Republican Party to do positive stuff, uh, I think is the big missing piece. I, you know, there's obviously a lot more work to do, but I think, you know, on the intellectual side, uh, a lot of advances have been made. And I don't know, you can tell me what you think about this, but 
I used to go to these conferences and like mention industrial policy and, you know, everyone would look at me like I was completely crazy and, you know, a bunch of boomers would, you know, fall over and I don't know, they make health problems. <laughs> yeah. anyway. um, but now, now it's like, you know, we're, you know, I, if anything, this stuff is the consensus uh, at the kind of intellectual level. And there's a lot more willingness to do that on the sort of intellectual side. Um, and I think a lot more ideas on everything from from big tech to to industrial policy to education and worker training and all of that. Um, but, you know, at the sort of political leadership level, um, it's this view that we can just get by by complaining about the problems and not really having any solutions. And I think the donors are pretty happy with that. So a lot of the intellectual ferment ferment just doesn't bubble up and get anything done. Yeah, I think it's accurate that we've we've definitely consolidated in a lot of ways in the intellectual space. And that's part of why I'm concerned is because it it seems like one of two things could be true. Either there was an untethering of what happens in intellectual circles from what trickles down into the actual concrete policy space and policy implementation sphere, or they were never actually tethered. They were always just kind of moving concurrently in the same direction. We thought that consolidating power in one space would mean gains in the other, and that may or may not be the case. I mean, we'll see when we have political power again. I don't think that, I don't think any of that had reached its apogee even by the end of the Trump administration, at which point we we didn't have either chamber, or well, we didn't have a chamber of Congress either. So like there wasn't any opportunity to do stuff. The question would be like, what does a Republican Congress and president do if they have unified control of government in the first hundred days of an administration, the first two years of an administration? We'll see, potentially. Um, what a what is some of the lowest hanging fruit that you would encourage if, if, if you were trying to turn on C-SPAN again in 2025? And let's not put any names to politicians because who cares at this point? Uh, what, what would you want to see candidates talking about to indicate that they were serious about any of this stuff at the level of, you know, the kinds of things you say to get votes the way you talk about it? You know, there, I, I'd, I'd be shocked if a specific president said the words industrial policy and I'd frankly recommend against it because snooze fest. But like <laughs> substantively, what would you want to hear them saying? Yeah, I, I do think the supply side agenda um, is the key. And I think, you know, Republicans could add a lot to that um, by, you know, keeping it away from some of the really loony environmental stuff. I don't think all the environmental stuff is bad. I think building battery factories is just fine. But, you know, as we know, there are some kind of, you know, crazy uh, depopulation, degrowth environmental uh, stuff out there. And Republicans can certainly uh, be useful in, in keeping away from that. But they, that's got to be incorporated. The battery larger... stuff is also just like it's 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 energy nimbyism. It's like we'll build batteries, but like the actual like power generation still has to happen somewhere. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, again, I mean, I, there is a significant and growing constituency now for like nuclear energy. Yeah. Um, uh, but Republicans, you know, could they could own that issue. Um, fixing the electric grid. Uh, never thought that would be an issue in the United <laughs> States. I, you know, I, I in, in Africa, like people talked about that as like, well, when the electric grid stops working, that's how you know this country has gone down. Um, well, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> you know, the saying like TIA, this is Africa. I've repurposed it to TIA. This is America. Yeah. But that's we're having power issues right now as we're taping this. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think, yeah, I think, you know, just a more. Uh, one that, you know, taking care of your constituents is a nice idea. So, you know, focusing on on your states and, and getting things in your states. Agri like, who are the most Republic loyal Republican constituencies? 
like rural communities, right? Would it would it be crazy to to formulate an industrial policy uh, option specifically to rebuild and revitalize, you know, ag adjacent uh, and other rural communities? Um, that seems like very low hanging fruit politically to me. Um, and then you know, uh, there's you know the education stuff we sort of mentioned. Um, there's both the kind of uh, vocational level, um, you know, building and getting out of the four year or nothing model. We all know that's terrible. I don't need to belabor that point, but you know, um, the kind of, sometimes like the community colleges vocational thing that that's used as like a placeholder and doesn't really mean anything. But you know, Tom Cotton introduced a thing yesterday on um, like grants to employers to do apprenticeships, like stuff like that is very obvious. Uh, um, you know, healthcare, like we spend 20% of our GDP on healthcare and our life expectancy is now lower than China's. Um, again, you got to get out of, uh, Paul Ryan, we're going to marketize everything. That's both stupid health savings accounts, and <laughs> undesirable. Um, but you know, I, I'm a fan of the Australian model personally, which is like universal catastrophic coverage. And then if people want to do supplemental beyond that, go for it. Um, but I, you know, let's be honest, like, uh, there's a long way to go for the Republican party on that one. Um, we also have a different population than Australia. Like our, our population is chronically ill all the time. (laughs) And that's just a very different not to unwind. Um, yeah. And then there's, um, you know, what should be a really easy one for the family and they're sort of getting, or for the Republican party and they're sort of getting there as a family, like in a way, like all policy should be family policy. Like, what are we doing that's not about supporting strong families? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, I think, you know, better child tax credits and stuff like that. All that's good. Um, but you could you could go go well beyond that. And like the goal of making it possible for, you know, a household to have a single income earner and be like viable middle class. Like that is a very long goal. It's going to take a long time to reach there, reach that. But it's a good goal, I think. And, it, you know, um, that should be a center point too. You mentioned earlier how you know building that elite coalition will require like a lobby interest. I'm curious what you make of uh, this contention that I've been working with for a while, uh, mostly as a way to troll oil and gas donor types. Um, that the way that the Republican par- Party has postured itself towards oil and gas is not a terrible way to think about industrial policy more broadly. Um, you know, they're, they're more than willing to defend federal subsidies for um, uh, and price stabilization for the industry to protect it. They make it an affirmative good to have production in the United States to the greatest extent possible. They valorize the fact that it's a blue collar industry that's high income work for yep. for the workers. And and then on, on the flip side of it, the industry has actually done the Republican Party just fine by funneling hundreds of millions of dollars to it over the years. So like, what, what do you it, make and of it's, it? And it's done well. And it's at the, te- the U.S. oil industry is at the technological forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I hadn't thought of it in, in quite those terms before, uh, but I fully agree. Um, and there's no reason, you know, we shouldn't want to do that for other strategic industries. The other, one other thing I'll say about this is like, I think, you know, Republican complaints against ESG, like they're accurate, they're right. But I think, you know, again, we're, the Republican Party is going about it all wrong, uh, like they usually do. It's just <laughs> oppose and aim for neutrality. Yeah. Uh, and that's not going to work. Um, 
And even even, you know, because one, like the opposition to ESG is itself politically motivated. So you can't like incur a big cost opposing ESG and then complain about politically motivated ESG. It's like contradictory. Yeah. Um, and, and the same thing with, uh, you know, ESG itself arose because I think I, and again, I agree with all the complaints a lot. It's crazy. But a part of this was the recognition that pure shareholder primacy like wasn't working anymore. Like we've been doing that for 30 years and, you know, we've been going down ever since. Um, so what Republicans should be thinking about uh, is formulating their own ESG or whatever they want to call it criteria. Like we can funnel money into the industries we like and the locations we like and, and the causes that we like. And even if your goal is to get to neutrality, like, you know, one thing Trump understood is like, you don't go in with like your best compromise offer. You got to start, you know. Yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders said, you, you asked for the full loaf and then you got a half loaf. Yeah. No, so you, you've even inadvertently touched into touched on to something that, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about lately. Um, a friend of mine called me about this a few months ago and, and she was complaining that that, you know, some of the congressional activity on on ESG has just been annoying her and. We basically spent some time figuring out, well, what would the contours of like a right wing ESG look like? They would prioritize domestic supply chains, you know, anti-fragile supply chains as much as possible, uh, investing in parts of the country that are underinvested in maybe in, you know, uh, you know, the, the rust belt that's been deindustrialized, uh, prioritizing you know, good labor standards for that that are conducive to family formation, good maternity paternity leave policies on, uh, you know, a, a, a corporate bill of rights against cancellation. You know, you can't just get fi you can't just fire someone if the mob comes to their door. I mean, there's so, yeah. there's so much there. I mean, do, do you have other contours that, that you've thought might have might might be part of a, a right wing ESG? Yeah, those are the big ones. I mean, you, you could just add some kind of like basic national security characteristics too. Like how mm -hmm. much is this company investing in China? Mm -hmm. Like they get a bad score. You could do family friendliness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like there's plenty of like, this is what's so interesting to me as I've gotten into politics or, you know, political journalism or whatever you want to call it is like almost anything you come up with, like the left has like this really well built out policy apparatus. So there's at least like three organizations that rate companies based on family friendliness, like understood in, in fairly left-wing terms, like mm -hmm. daycare, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's not a single you know, Republican right-wing organization that looks at family friendliness and in, in corporate activity from a, mm -hmm. from a more right-wing perspective. There's no reason there can't be one. Um, so yeah, uh, those would be the base. The other one is, you know, actually, you know, you could even go simpler, it's fairly nonpartisan, but sort of basic local impact. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right now, uh, I'm generalizing, I'm, I'm making violent generalizations here, but you know, what does like a red state private equity or a state pension fund do for like the middle market private equity guy in those states? Um, yeah. Virtually nothing. Like if the state pension fund is smart, they're giving it to like Blackstone's non-traded REIT. Um, if they're stupid, they're giving it to a bunch of hedge funds. But in general, <laughs> they're not really prioritizing, um, you know, their own their own constituents and the investors who really have a stake in the, in the welfare of their state. Mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, if, you know, if you're a Texas middle market PE guy, uh, you're probably, you know, on average, you know, pretty patriotic and, you know, um, uh, the, the sort of values that I think we like. So why, why can't we help those people? Why can't the right think in terms of helping its constituencies instead of just some imaginary notion of neutrality or whatever? 
Yeah, the amount, uh, you know, ne- negative disincentives for the amount of miles capital has to travel back and forth. <laughs> you know, it, it uh, yeah, that, I, that's I even that's, a green idea. <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, if, if your money's all going to New York, like that, that doesn't, I mean, it's sometimes just, again, vibes, very important. Like, We've arrived at an economic system where it is significantly more profitable to ship something twice across the Pacific and back uh, than to make it in our own country. Like that, that alone, like just on on pure, like sensible terms, doesn't make sense. And it seems like there's there's a lot in our economy that's that's quite like. I think that. that's technically ended now, but yeah, you know, well, we'll see. Um, someone told me at the last National Conservatism Conference that they thought that the only way that uh, our elites will let us. Uh, reshore our supply chains from china is if we're at war with them so <laughs> it's well, uh, we may get there yeah exactly i mean as as stupid as our foreign policy elite is it's yeah. not out of the question no not at all uh julius where can people keep up with everything that you're doing writing saying um you know the best place is americanaffairsjournal.org um uh, and if you really must uh, you can you can find me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, staying off Twitter is my last jihad. Uh, I don't encourage you. You tweet like once on. a month. It's always I only tweet my own like writings. So yeah. it's like it's basically like you know the old fashioned like website or whatever. But again, if you must, uh, it it does exist. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on our podcast, and thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed that and aren't too blackpilled by it. Uh, we, we certainly had a fun time taping. Again, go be sure to check out everything about American Affairs. Become a subscriber. Go check out AmericanMoment.org, where you can find the entire backlog of this podcast, as well as events and programs that we have coming up. Check out AmCanon, where we collate some of our favorite books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and more on the variety of public policy issues we care about. Uh, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join if you'd like to talk to us and figure out how best to get involved. Go to AmericanMoment.org slash donate. Kick us some cash to help make sure that the lights stay on around here. You know, I could I could pull a, you know, Nick into the frame and say, this ginger boy will starve if uh, you do not give us money. Um, and he's got a baby on the way. So, uh, you know, there's entire generations of ginger kiddos that will starve if you don't send money our way. Um, our producers are laughing off camera. Uh, and so, uh, but also finally, make sure to rate and review this podcast five stars it really does help um, thousands of you listen every week if uh, just one percent of you decided to uh, review the podcast we would have some more reviews and it'd be fantastic so thank you guys as always for listening we will see you next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center our podcast is produced and edited by jake mercier and jared cummings our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Hey,